to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. A smorgasbord of snackable stories to help you be a more effective leader. So this week is a little bit special. I am so honored to be joined by Vince Cerf, who is often referred to as the father of the internet. And if you don't already know, you'll find out why in a second. So if you think that what you're trying to do right now is difficult, just imagine the complexities involved in managing the kind of brains involved in making the imagined reality in creating the internet. So today you're going to get a bit of a sneak preview into how this podcast is made and see adaptability in action. Adaptability is one of the create A's. So you'll know by now that I'm a massive fan of formats, but best laid plans of mice and men and all that this week, we're going to break all the rules because that's what rules are for. But first, let me explain why I dedicate time to make this weekly podcast for you and why I hope you will want to subscribe. So if you work inside a company or an organization, whether it be private or public or big or small, if you work with humans, do you sometimes find it challenging to get your teams to do the things you will need them to do? You can see exactly what needs to happen, so why can't they? It's really tough. Bring on humans leading humans. This audio fuel kit is made for you with love and it's packed with the stories and the tools and the inspiration that we all need to shine as leaders. So keep it in your backpack for those times when you need to re-energize, to be inspired, to believe that you can succeed. Because here's the thing, leaders across the world have succeeded. They have proved that you can lead teams in even the most complex situations if you understand what makes humans tick. So I'm on a quest to collect those stories to give you the courage and the know-how to lead more human. Now, next week, I'm going to be talking to my dear friend and inspiration, Harley Dubois, who is the Chief Culture Officer of the Burning Man Foundation. I mentioned last week that this woman and being at Burning Man changed the way that I see the world of work completely. So that's going to be an absolute cracker. But before we continue, I want to say again a massive, massive thank you to all of the people who've reached out and said they've been inspired by this podcast. Thank you, guys. It really, really means a lot to me. It energizes me. So please do reach out and give me your feedback. So the way that this podcast works is that I send the create framework to my guests and I ask them to choose real warts and all stories that are triggered by the framework. The create framework, by the way, is a simple way to remember how to nurture the environments in which humans thrive. 
head over to www.wearebeep.com to find out what each of those letters means. So they look at the framework, they figure out which three stories they want to tell. And then we have a chat for about half an hour about how we can tell those stories in the best possible way to inspire you, dear listener, to be more imaginal. Vint Cerf, it turns out, is not one to be tethered by format. So what you'll hear today is pretty well our entire conversation because some stories are not meant to be short. They are epic. And some humans are not meant to be confined by formats. So buckle up, listen in, be inspired. Welcome, Vint Cerf. So I'm still struggling to figure out what three stories are appropriate, but um, let me suggest three uh, and we'll see whether they match your uh, criteria. Uh, one obvious one, of course, is how the hell did the internet happen? And uh, there are, I think we can be brief about some key moments uh, that indicate what it took uh, to get, make that happen. I have no idea the amount of people stuff that happened behind the internet. So this is about the human side of things. So there must have been so many blockers. And I don't mean on the technology. I mean on the people not taking it seriously, not hearing, not wanting to be part of it, not believing, all of those things. Remember, this wasn't a wake up in the morning, I'm going to invent the internet. This is more like the Defense Department saying, uh, we've got a dozen universities doing research on artificial intelligence and we want them to share their results and their computing power. How do we do that? Uh, and they end up uh, developing something called the ARPANET, which was stood for Advanced Research Projects Agency Network. Uh, it exercised packet switching, which was at the time a technology that was considered crazy by the traditional telecoms people who were using circuit switching. Uh, which is a much slower process. I mean, you dial on the phone, you wait for somebody to answer. Computers are impatient. They don't want to wait. They just want to fling the data out and get it to the destination. So packet switching is faster. So we built the ARPANET and discovered that it was possible to get disparate machines from different manufacturers to communicate with each other over a common homogeneous packet switch net. And so that was an engineering project. And then when it worked, uh, then we started saying, okay, how do we use computers for command and control? And that meant the computers were gonna be in ships at sea, in aircraft and in mobile vehicles, but we built the ARPANET based on dedicated telephone circuits. So how the heck are you gonna do that? You know, the tanks will run over the wires and they'll break. So uh, we developed a mobile packet radio system, which is what you use today when you drive around with your mobile. And, and this was back in 19, 73 or so. Uh, incidentally, by the way, the handheld mobile telephone project was started also in 1973. Completely independently, in parallel, we were working on very similar concepts of radio-based mobile communication, except we were focused on data communication. And uh, Marty Cooper, who was doing the handheld mobile for Motorola, was focused on voice communication. But then, you know, for the ships at sea, we had a, a packet satellite system. So we had mobile packet radio, packet satellite, plus the ARPANET, which we'd already built. And the question was, how do you hook all these things together and make them look uniform? And that's where the TCP IP protocols came from. 
So we published a paper in 1974 saying this is how you do it. And then we started doing it in 1975. And it took from 1975 to 1983 to get to the point where we could actually turn the system on. And in that interim period, starting in 1978, uh, there was a huge battle that began with the international standards organization, especially the Europeans, deciding they didn't want anything to do with this military stuff. And they uh, developed what they call the open systems interconnection model of internetworking. And they pursued that independent of the TCP IP stuff. So there was a 15-year battle from 1978 to 1993 between these two standards. And oh, by the way, just for the hell of it, it behind uh, the scenes in 1976, another packet switch standard came along, X25 from the Consultative Committee on International Telegraphy and Telephony, now called ITUT. And so that was in place and commercially available. So there were at least three computer packet switch networking protocols that were intended to solve the problem of internetworking. And so there, there was just a persistent battle for years. And eventually the TCP IP protocols won partly because we just kept implementing them. Everybody else was documenting things, but not getting them built. <laughs> or, oh, the power of getting things done, just yeah, yeah. doing it. So, you know, we just did it. Yeah. So we, our theory was get it to work and then document it as opposed to document it and then try to figure out what was wrong. So uh, we went through four iterations of that. You know, I had the benefit of support from the federal government, U.S. federal government to do this. And so I had assets, resources, people. I didn't have to go, you know, beg for money. And that, believe me, that's a huge difference between doing a startup, which you know well. Uh, so I had funding and resources available to do this. And eventually I ended up running the program for the Defense Department. So let's bear in mind that the people who are listening to this are people who are I would imagine because of the kind of people that we're pushing out to, they're senior leaders inside large organizations going, oh my God, everyone's talking about digital transformation. How do we get people aligned? How do we get them to move from where they are, well, old style to future of work? So how many people were working with you then? So the government funding it, fine, but how many people working with you then? And how did you get the best from them? Well, part of the reason that I got the best is that the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency's tactics were to find the smartest people they could find and put them to work on the problem. They could get away with that. None of this competitive bidding crap. This was yep. more a question of go find the smartest people you can and put them to work on the problem. So I had a cadre of you know a few dozen people at different universities working on this stuff who had worked on the ARPANET. So they had experience with packet switching. And then, of course, we, uh, Bob Kahn and I, uh, stirred them up on this internetwork idea and put them to work on it. So I had really fantastic, smart people working on this. And then, as time went on, other agencies recognized the utility of this kind of networking and invested in it by building their own pieces of backbone. So the Department of Energy built ESnet, and the National Science Foundation built NSFnet, and NASA built the NASA Science Internet. And we had the ARPANET. So we had four big backbones in the US, which we interconnected using this technology. So we were scaling this thing up with the help of the US federal government. And by the time the mid to late 1980s come along, we're starting to see Europeans, especially up in the north, the Norginet group, 
Well, in the meantime, of course, in the, the Central Europe, there's all this, we don't want to have anything to do with this military crap, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and eventually we overwhelm them. But, you know, the big message here is patience and persistence. I mean, I was persistent about pushing this and patient about it, saying, you know, this stuff works, we know it works. I was given the freedom to persist. Yes. So I was at DARPA for six years, I was at Stanford for four years, and I was at UCLA for five years. And so, you know, do the math, that's 15 years of persistence to the point where when I left DARPA in 1982, we were able to turn the internet on formally. Vince, you know, you talk about this, like, you know, you've got some of the smartest people in the world from different organizations working together. Therefore, your leadership was must have been around. You must have given people something where they, they could see something different. They wanted to be part of that. Otherwise, people would have drifted. It's hard to get people to collaborate. There were two things, I think, that contributed to that. Steve Crocker, who was my uh, close friend and still is, but we were at UCLA together, and Steve led what was called the Network Working Group, which was a dozen universities working on the ARPANET. And it was a totally open, anyone was free to contribute. You know, we had big arguments over what was the right thing to do, but there was this huge freedom to participate. And there wasn't a top-down behavior at all. And we adopted that same tactic for the internet. We basically said, okay, here's the architecture of the system. It's wide open. If you don't like this particular stack of protocols, add some, you know, to the right or add a new layer. Please, you know, you're welcome uh, to come and try to convince everybody that uh, what you, your ideas are needed. And so this openness and willingness to listen to new ideas was absolutely essential. Everybody felt free to participate. And so it wasn't like they were assigned a particular thing. They largely said, oh, I can do this part and I can do that part. Paul Barron, who was a very famous engineer who came up with the idea of packet switching in the early 1960s, describes this process as building a cathedral, you know, where, you know, you need all kinds of skills and expertise. And although occasionally somebody will say, I built the cathedral. Well, actually, they put the brick in over here and, you know, somebody else says, well, I did all the sculptures. And so I built the cathedral and Paul kept reminding everybody, you know, it takes everybody to build this thing. And so we had the benefit of people contributing to uh, their skills and their ideas and a framework, both a, an institutional framework and a, uh, a development framework or an engineering framework that allowed people to do that. I love that. That's the story. That's the story. I think, I think like I say, if I'm the CIO of... DXC, and actually I've come from this quite traditional way of doing things. Just to hear that story of just going, actually, no, we didn't tell people what to do. We gave them a framework. We said, look, come bring your stuff. So what was your governance situation, if you don't mind me asking? How did you, or was it totally self-governed yeah, all the way from the beginning? Um, there were contracts associated with each of the organizations that were participating in the internet work. And so I was responsible for, for those um, agreements as the program manager at DARPA. And of course, there were others before me at DARPA who handled that same process. I also had a significant responsibility for the technical evolution of the system. But I was there primarily to 
try to keep things going on track and to not let them drift off, stay focused on the primary objective of getting this thing to work. So I had fingers in the protocol pie for most of the time that the internet was being developed until it was turned on in 1983. And so even as program manager, my fingers were down in the text of the, of the specs. Uh, and I, of course, I had the ability to persuade people by, by saying, listen, I'm paying for this, so pay attention. You know, otherwise, you don't get a contract next year. And so I had plenty of power, but the style of the work, I think, was very collaborative. Yes. And I, you know, so what you've just said is, oh, yeah, we had the contracts and the money, but I know you. I don't know you hugely well, but I know you well enough to know that you're really warm. You're really open. You listen. You're not program manager delivered to this. Well, I don't think you are. Are you? <laughs> this was a very special aspect of the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. I mean, it gave enormous agency to the program managers, budget funding and freedom to really pursue, to engage as deeply as they wanted to. You can't ask for more freedom than that. That's primarily the reason this all worked out. Now, there's another reason why it worked, and that's because it worked. And people eventually saw business in it. And so by 1984, we started to see router companies like Cisco Systems and Proteon building pieces of equipment to help build the internet or to help make the internet. And uh, then not very long thereafter, in 1989, we saw uh, network service providers, UUNet, PSINet, and SurfNet all came up in 1989. And then the World Wide Web hits in 1991, when Tim Berners-Lee releases his design for uh, HTTP and HTML. And so, you know, in this rather compressed period of time from 1983 to 1991, so roughly a 10-year period, we see this rapid evolution into commercial practice. So we get Netscape Communications comes along in 1994, and it goes public in 1995. And at that point, the venture capital community is fixated on the internet. And they're throwing money at anything that looks like it might have something to do with the internet. And then we hit the dot bust in April 2000, because a lot of the people who'd gotten a lot of capital spent all the capital and didn't have any revenue. And so they went out of business. But the internet continued and it persisted. And of course, by this time, the World Wide Web is showing all kinds of possibilities. By that time, we had Google was in was two years old. I think uh, Yahoo was a little older, maybe four years old. And they were superseding things like AOL and Prodigy that were walled gardens. And the internet was this wide open space. And so different from the style of AOL, for example. And now, of course, we've got walled gardens again in the form of things like Facebook. So, you know, it goes like so this that. is where I come into the story. So I start falling. I understand what the World Wide Web and the Internet is in year 2000. And I don't know anything about large corporations. I just can see that this is the most extraordinary opportunity for people to start collaborating in different ways and learning from each other and swapping. And, and that's where this journey towards digital transformation comes. What's funny, even listening to the way that you're talking about this extraordinary journey over these years, is this agility and this collaboration and the openness and the frameworks and the freedom 
have what they've what's made the internet and then trying to force that into organizations that are not built to do that and here we are 20 years later still not quite getting our culture and our technologies to map with each other so that's your first story and i think that i'm going to keep a lot of what we've just said anyway um the bits that really really resonated i think with me and will resonate with the listeners are this idea of it's the cathedral piece you know there's an architect there are a number of architects everybody built a piece of it everybody says they own it and isn't that how a large corporation should be what's your next story well the next story starts in 1998 and it follows the successful landing of the pathfinder robot on mars in 1997 uh, the previous successful landings were in 1976, the two Viking landers uh, sent by the U.S. on Mars. And then for 20 years, nothing worked. Everything failed for whatever reason. And then finally, Pathfinder lands successfully on Mars in 1997. So I got together with a team at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in the spring of 98 to talk about communications for space exploration. And we started with the question, what should we be doing now that we will need 25 years from now in order to support manned and robotic space exploration? And we said, well, why don't we build an internet for the solar system? We started out thinking that we could use the TCP IP protocols of the Earth internet. It you know, worked on Earth, so it ought to work on Mars. And we very quickly discovered that although that's probably a true statement, the problem is that the interplanetary distances are literally astronomical and the speed of light is too slow. And so it takes three and a half minutes for a radio signal to go from Earth to Mars when we're closest together and 20 minutes when we're farthest apart in our respective orbits. That's double that for the round trip time. The protocols of the, of the TCP IP uh, system were not designed with 40 minute round trip times in mind. And it gets worse, of course, as you get to the outer planets, you're talking hours to even days. So uh, we said, okay, uh, oh, and we have the other problem. We have the planets are rotating and we don't know how to stop that. So if you're talking to something on the surface of the planet and it rotates, you can't talk to it anymore. So what we're faced with in interplanetary communication is variable delay and disruption. And so we said, okay, time to, you know, back to square one, we need to design a suite of protocols that will deal with variable delay and disruption. So we call them DTN technologies, and we developed something we call the bundle protocol. We went through four iterations of that. The same kind of tactic was, was adopted as got us to the internet. A small team of people beginning with a vision in mind about designing and building this to meet the requirements. Um, we all had the same objective. We had massive battles and disagreements and everything else, but it was safe to have those disagreements because everybody knew that we were all trying to get to the same place. So there was a great deal of mutual respect among the people who were doing this work. And so it was okay to have the big fight because it wasn't personal. It was, it was engineering battles. And of course, in, in engineering battle, for the most part, there is a way of deciding whether or not an idea is good or bad. I mean, either it works or it doesn't work, or it works well or it works poorly. And so there are metrics that you can apply, and that's very helpful for settling dispute because you have a concrete way of figuring out what's the best way to do this. So that effort has been going on since 1998, and here it is, 2021. And we're at the point now where 
The protocols, just like the TCPIP protocols, have been standardized by the Consultative Committee on Space Data Systems, which is a UN organization that supports communications and data handling for space exploration. And it's been standardized in the Internet Engineering Task Force, so it's readily available for terrestrial applications. And now it's being pushed out into the return to the moon on the Artemis mission. We've got it running on the International Space Station. We have prototypes running on Mars and in orbit around Mars. But it's taken 20 some odd years to get there. And so we're back to patience and persistence and support from government agencies. So we had support from NASA. We had support from DARPA to do this initial work. And once again, it's taken a long time to get there. But the persistence of the support has been ultra valuable and the persistence of the people. I mean, some of the people who are part of the program have been there just like I have since 1998. So we're talking nearly 25 years. So actually, I'm going to completely forget the format because I'm listening to you and I want to capture, I'll make something from this. So if you're talking to somebody in a large organization, like, you know, any of the ones that I work with, whether it be a large bank or a large pharmaceutical, they really struggle with retention. People come in, they quite often don't quite know how they fit into the big organization. What would your advice be to them from the experience that you've had over, oh, by the way, creating the internet with a bunch of people, which has to have been a fairly strong, you know, there must have been all sorts of personal struggles on the way through that, because there always are. And then let's make a connected technology system for space. So what would your advice be to people who, and you're working at Google now, so you know what, what the pain of even working in the best company in the world So look, there are two R's that are at work here. One is respect and the other is relevance. If you don't have a group of people that respect each other, it's really hard to make progress because they'll fall into debate and dispute, which turns personal. So respect is absolutely essential for success in this space. And relevance is equally important. People wanna know that what they're doing is relevant. And so it's important for everybody to have in mind is what I am doing getting us to the goal. And the good news here is that it was easy to express what the goal was. So you could keep it in top of mind. Uh, It's like sending a man to the moon, getting him back safely. This is an easily expressed thing. You can hang on to that and ask yourself, is what I am doing now helping to get to that goal? I mean, when I was, 18, I was working on the F1 engines for the Apollo program. I was part of the testing team. And, you know, so, and I knew that my little bit was important because if the damn engine didn't run properly, you'd never make it off the ground. So I felt, you know, proud of my little bit uh, in that program. So in the case of, of internet, it was pretty clear. We knew what we wanted. We wanted a system that would allow any network to connect to any other network and every computer to connect to every other computer in a uniform way. And so that was an easily stated goal. Same argument is true for the interplanetary internet. How do I allow any spacecraft anywhere in the, well, we won't say universe, but let's say solar system, to communicate with any other? How do we make that look uniform? How do we allow multiple networks to interact with each other in this space environment? So easily stated goals that you can relate to and you can relate your work to have to be a part of that solution of hanging on to people and making them feel like their contributions count. So how did you, 
you, meaning the, the collaborative body that was working together, how did you make sure that you always had people, you had, you've had people working on the second project for how many years? Almost 25, it started in 1990. Same people. It's grown over time. Every laboratory at NASA is now involved and the Japanese Space Agency and the European Space Agency, uh, NASA, uh, what did I leave out? Uh, oh, the Korean Space Agency are all participant now in this program. We've set up a, a special interest group in the Internet Society called the Interplanetary Network Special Interest Group. We have 800 people around the world who are interested in this. We've got protocols running on the cloud-based systems now at Azure, at Google, and Amazon. All are running the protocols. As you know, part this is all very that part is experimental. So this has expanded over time, but you know, step by step, you just draw people in. And since a lot of them are volunteers, they're not getting paid to do anything. So they must really care about this. Otherwise, why would they do it? People are being paid to do the work. And it's because organizations who are funding it want the results. And again, it's your story about the cathedral. Everybody's doing their own little tiny piece to make something they can imagine what it's going to be like at the end. And I wonder then, stepping back, completely going away from the format, how much of the development of the internet and thereafter the World Wide Web was associated with stories, with imagination, with people can, being able to see what the possibilities were? Several things are important here. First of all, the layered architecture of the internet and the careful uh, interface uh, specifications allowed for a great deal of freedom to invent new applications and new protocols to support them. So the architecture invited invention. That's important. You could fit new protocols in, you know, higher layers or horizontally. And that's going on all the time. There are hundreds of protocols associated with the internet today. And the same argument can be made for the interplanetary system. The same argument can be made for the World Wide Web, because what's happened is that the basic hypertext transport protocol and the hypertext markup language have evolved over time since Tim introduced this in 91. And the organizations that have grown up around the standards-making activity have been crafted to invite people to invent, to enable people uh, to offer their ideas. You know, no idea is forced on anyone. Uh, it's a consensus kind of uh, process. There's a World Wide Web Consortium, which does the web-based protocols, and there's the Internet Engineering Task Force. And there are other standards activities as well. And IEEE, for example, does an awful lot on local area networking, uh, things like Wi-Fi uh, and, and Ethernets and so on. Uh, and there are other standards organizations, the International Telecommunications Union, the International Standards Organization, all have the potential to contribute. And again, to come back to the cathedral analogy, it takes different skills in order to build this thing. And so what you try to do is take advantage of the best skills you can find. And allow people to be where they're best, yep. as opposed to, yeah. I'm now thinking about the fact that, you know, there might be a CMO who's listening to this, who has touched the internet basically through the process. Obviously, they'll be using their mobile phone and we, our entire reality is kind of centered on the internet. And they probably are desperately trying to figure out how we get from where many of these large corporations have been set up like machines 
with their silos and their hierarchies and their bureaucracies. And digital transformation to them feels like something scary and impossible. And actually what you're talking about is the fact that this has all come from the create way of working, actually, empowerment. Uh, I guess the energy of knowing that you're stepping forward, measuring things in a way so that people can see progress, all those kind of things. So what advice would you give to that CMO who's going, oh, how, how do I get this organization to operate as one exco? Well, first of all, architecture helps. So understanding the business that you're in and how it's organized, understanding who the customers are and what it is that they need um, and being able to articulate that to a variety of different players, whether it's the finance department or the marketing department or the sales department or the engineering department or the operations department. If you can't articulate what it is that the system is supposed to do, if you can't describe what all the pieces are, how they interact with each other, why would you expect anyone in the company to understand that? And so for me, every project that I've been involved in, the internet, the MCI mail, the interplanetary internet, all have had the character that there was an architecture associated with this. There were pieces who thought about it as a system. And I can tell you that my respect for sales and marketing uh, grew dramatically uh, during the course of my work on the internet. As I realized very early on, if you can't sell your ideas, you're out of luck because you can't get anybody to help you because why would they believe you? And so you not only do you have to believe in the ideas, but you have to be able to articulate that to people who, whose help you want. And once you get them fired up, it's more a question of just aiming them, you know, in the right direction and bam, off they go. Yes. Uh, so um, for me, I've tried to impress on engineers how important sales and marketing is. And when I was in, in early days as an engineer, I remember not understanding the difference between marketing and sales. I thought there was all sort of one thing and it was kind of, you know, rah, rah, big, you know, and I thought, well, you know, it's not as important as engineering. Well, I was wrong. And I've got to the point now where I sit my engineers down and they say, now, listen, I'm going to talk to you about marketing and sales. Uh, and I said, no, 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 it's really important. If they aren't successful, we don't pay you. Oh, that gets their attention. Uh, you know, no revenue, no pay. Can't sell anything, no revenue. Okay. So it's very important. Sales is very important. Figuring out how to design a product that somebody can sell is very important. And so I used to have a deal uh, with the sales and marketing group. I said, listen, here's the deal. I will not build stuff that you can't sell as long as you don't sell stuff that I can't build. <laughs> that was our deal. Then I said, uh, I remember being confused about sales and marketing. So I went to the uh, vice president of marketing uh, at MCI and I said, so, you know, what's the difference? And he says, look, this is easy. The marketing guy is responsible for telling the sales guy where to go and what to say when he gets there. And that's, you know, a very simple formulation of the difference between the two jobs. And of course, the sales guy's job is to figure out what are the problems that the customer has that I have a solution to? How do I solve my customer's problem? This is not order taking. This is problem solving. Yes. And it takes real skill, especially if you don't have all the pieces 
that will solve your customers' problems, you have to figure out, okay, so who do I partner with in order to get this to work? Yeah. And yet you still, I mean, there have been times where, as an example, I have a meeting with a CTO at a very large global pharmaceutical company. And he says to me, I find it ridiculous because actually technology is so far in advance for the rest of the organization. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you wow. know, the technology is already, they just don't get it. And I'm like, well, you're talking about, as you say, a system. This is not a machine. Therefore, all of the functionality that you can deliver, if people don't get it internally or externally, then... It's not going to go anywhere. That's right. I mean, look, this stuff doesn't sell itself. So figuring out... Oh, in fact, let me tell you another one of my favorite quotes. Uh, the guy that runs the Gallup company, Jim Clifton, is one of these folksy guys. Think of him as being just sort of a run-of-the-mill kind of hickey guy, right? Well, guess what? He's like the guy that you meet in the bar who's doing, you know, playing cards and says, you know, I don't really know. He's holding a deck of cards. He says, you know, I don't know very much about this game. You know, I think there's a card missing here. So this that's Jim. So uh, Clifton points out that the purpose of a company is to create and keep a customer. That's what the purpose of the company is. And if you can't do that, you don't have a company. You know, forget about this, this shareholder crap and everything. The purpose of a company is to create and keep a customer. And if you hang on to that and, and you, ask, you ask yourself, is what I'm doing today creating a customer and keeping the customer you have a pretty high probability of keeping your business going. Right. And, 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 and still, I, I spend a lot of time with organizations where they talk about customer centricity, but they don't really know whether they're making customers happy or not. And they also <laughs> don't. <laughs> yeah, this, this is like infrastructure. You know, infrastructure is something you pay no attention to until it doesn't work. Right. The electricity goes out, the roads are jammed, there's no water or it's polluted. You know, all of those things we don't pay any attention to until they aren't available. And then suddenly we realize, holy moly, that was pretty important. Now what? So, yes, you're quite right. You really need to be sincere about customer centricity. You really have to want to do everything you can to keep your customer happy. And that has to start inside. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that obviously Google does quite well is to make sure that you've got a culture where the employees are, are empowered to be the best they can be or as much as possible. Because by doing that, that means that wherever the customer touches your, the edges of your company, the customer feels that. So now there's an interesting challenge here. Uh, by the way, I, I am more sensitive to, in this space, this discussion now than I used to be because I'm now in the cloud sales department at Google. I'm there mm -hmm. to facilitate the sale of, uh, of our cloud products. And so I'm even more sensitive now to the uh, ups and downs and ins and outs and pressures of sales. And one of the tricky problems is figuring out how do I give flexibility to my salespeople without necessarily having them discount the stuff so I don't have any profit uh, in my business. So there's a, a really big balancing act there about how do you meet quota without uh, and, and offer things to the customer, sometimes discounts, without putting yourself out of business. That turns out to be an interesting challenge. 
Yeah, I bet. Gosh, that's a whole new challenge. But I guess uh, that you approach it in the same way that you've approached all of the rest of the projects, which is looking at your part of the organization as part of a system. That's exactly right. And, and you listen to the customers and you feed that back as directly as you can to engineering and development. Uh, when I was doing MCI Mail for MCI, I had a weekly meeting with the people who were serving the customers of the MCI Mail system. It was a commercial email service. And they would call, it was a help desk. And I wanted to talk to the people who were at the help desk to hear what the problems were that customers were having, because I wanted that to feed back into the engineering design of the system or into operations. And so that was the most valuable time of the week was listening to what the customers were saying to the help desk. Yeah, and of course, this is, this is exactly what Beep is about. It's about if you can hear where the little challenges are, where the needs are, where the problems are, and you can bring smart people around them to find solutions to those little tiny problems, then actually you've got some chance of being successful as a system. I know that we've got a few minutes left and I know that you had a story that you wanted to share about your dear lady wife, and I'd love to hear it. So it's, a, it's not a long story, but it's an amazing one. Now Sigrid was, uh, was born with normal hearing, but at age three, she had spinal meningitis, all of her hearing went away. For 50 years, she was totally deaf. She didn't learn sign language. She had learned to lip read. She retained her speech, which was amazing, uh, given that she couldn't hear herself. And she went all through college. She was an interior designer, took classes in architecture, and managed to deal with all that. Then we got married in 1966, so this will be our 55th anniversary this year. So in 1996, she gets on the internet and starts poking around looking into cochlear implants. And she finds somebody in Israel uh, who can tell her what the state of the art is now, and then points her to Johns Hopkins University, uh, where she goes to be tested to see whether or not she would be a likely recipient uh, for a cochlear implant, which at that time in 96 was still right on the very edge of being medical therapy. It was still slightly experimental. So she gets her first implant in 1996 takes 45 minutes to do the operation. She comes home and waits a couple of weeks for everything to heal. Then she goes back to Johns Hopkins. And I wasn't there for that, but uh, they activated the speech processor. And about 20 minutes after they turned it all on, she picked up the phone and called me. For the, and we had a conversation on the phone for the first time in 30 years of married life. So uh, that was pretty astonishing. Then she got home and I discovered that I had a 53 year old teenager. I couldn't get her off the phone. She would take anything, you know. I was a senior VP at MCI at the time and AT&T would call to try to get her to switch, you know, to AT&T. So she, she'd pick up her phone and discover that whoever was calling was in India. And she'd say, wow, you know, your English is really good. Where did you learn that? And all this. So she'd go on for half an hour and this poor soul on the other end at the end, say, so you're going to switch to AT&T? And she said, well, no, my husband's a senior VP at MCI, but thanks for calling. And she said, <laughs> then, then she decided that she wanted to hear uh, words that uh, she hadn't heard before while she was deaf. And so she called the library. Remember, she's on the phone now. She calls the library and says, can I sign up for recorded books for the blind? And they said, sure, no problem. Name, address, phone number. Uh, now you're blind, aren't you? And she says, no, I'm deaf. And there's this long pause and they're trying to figure out how is that going to work? He makes herself listen to 500 books on tape. 
to hear words that she hadn't heard before or didn't know how to pronounce. Then she says, uh, I'm not going to miss anything. Uh, so she gets patch cords so she can plug into, uh, you know, a Sony Walkman to listen to books on tape. Uh, the patch cord works on the airplane so she can plug in and listen to a movie and not hear the screaming kid two feet away because it's only going into her speech processor. She gets an FM transmitter receiver so she can go to lectures and hear them from 150 feet away. She gets an optical receiver so she can go into a movie theater and pick up the sound that way into the speech processor. Uh, she gets a little microphone on the end of a cable which she can clip to somebody's lapel. So if she's walking down in an art gallery with somebody uh, taking her, she can hear what that person is saying. So this incredibly aggressive determination that no decibel will go undetected. And so the thing I want to emphasize is that she repeatedly forces herself to listen, knowing that is she's not going to get all of it. But if she doesn't make her brain practice with her new equipment, it won't learn how to make it work. And so you have to be very disciplined to do that. And she's really good at it. She just recently had a lens replacement and she's doing the same thing, making herself use the new lens in order to get her brain to accommodate to uh, this new piece of equipment. Beautiful. Technology is, I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like to suddenly have the gift of hearing when so many of the people that I deal with actually don't listen. Two things about Sigrid. One of them is when after she got her first implant, we would take walks and the birds would be out there and she would say, I heard that. And so I wanted <laughs> to write her biography called I Heard That as the title. But then more recently, she turns it off, uh, you know, and so she's in peace and quiet during the day when she's reading. And it's rather amusing, you know, she came home, the first thing she said to me after she got her implant working was, I don't have to look at you anymore. Then she turned it off and said, I don't have to listen to you either. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I can't thank you enough. It's been an absolute pleasure and loads of stuff I hadn't heard before. One of the reasons I'm doing this is because for some reason I've met the most extraordinary people in my life. And I feel like I have conversations one-to-one, -one, or sometimes one-to-two, or sometimes at dinner. But I, those stories want to be shared. And so that's why we're here. Um, so the last thing that we need to do is to decide what should the ep this episode of Humans Leading Humans be called? Oh, that's interesting. What shall we call this? Ah, this is Patience and Persistence Counts. Love it. Patience and persistence counts it shall be. Thank you so much, Vin. I really appreciate your time. And my mind is blown. <laughs> I'm sorry we messed up your, your format, uh, but sometimes this, these kinds of stories don't necessarily fit into little short anecdotes because they're sagas. Every one of these is a saga. Uh, and uh, sagas have to be told. You know. I, yeah, and as soon as we started, formats are only useful if you can break them. And as soon as you started, I thought, no, <laughs> I just want to listen. Thank you so much, Vin. This has been amazing. Well, you're welcome, Katz. It was fun to chat, and I wish you well with this whole series. Thank you. Bye for now. Holy Gamoli. 
I honestly feel so honored to have had that conversation with Vint, and I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did. But as you probably know by now, I fiercely believe that everything can be better, always. So I really want to hear your thoughts. What did you love? What resonated? What could I do better? What do you want more of? Who do you think deserves to join our list of imaginal guests? So if you have suggestions or comments, or of course a story that will inspire listeners in next week's episode, please DM us on Twitter at Beep Mind Shift. Beep, by the way, stands for the Behavioral Enterprise Empowerment Platform. So that's at Beep Mind Shift. Or DM me on LinkedIn, Kat Skeely, of course. So next week's guest is Harley Dubois, who is the Chief Culture Officer of the Burning Man Foundation. I cannot wait, I genuinely cannot wait to find out which of her many, many insights and stories she'll choose to share. There is so much to learn from that woman. You have been listening to humans leading humans towards a future of work that works for people. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Marketing Society. P.S. If you're a senior leader, and you need the know-how and networks to be successful and you're not already a member, you should totally become part of that tribe. Massive, massive thanks to Super Terrania for the magical sting of stings. Go to www.wearebeep.com to find out more about the CREATE framework and how we support companies to unlock the problem-solving potential of humans. Thank you, thank you, thank you for dedicating some of your precious time to this podcast. Please subscribe. You do not want to miss any more of this storytelling magic. Be inspired, be imaginal, be more human, and see you next week. Bye.